Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR 855 on your AM dial and I'm Janice Richardson. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolfe and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Laws are only felt when the individual comes into conflict with them. Susan LaFollier, Concerning Women, 1926. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And I'm speaking to Professor Marcia Barron about the philosophy of law. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Could you explain your starting points, rape law, and what you think the law should be? Okay. You mean my starting points regarding rape law? Yes. That yeah, that's it. Yes, right. So I guess the first thing is to say that the way the law is typically in the U.S., there's a requirement that the prosecution or the Crown prove force as well as non-consent. And I think that that's too hefty a burden. I, I think they should just have to prove non-consent. I haven't actually researched what it is in Australia. I happen to know a little bit about it in New Zealand. And there it is just non-consent. So the key idea is that the act part that they have to prove is that non-consensual sex took place. And then the other part that I think should have to be proven, which is the way, I'm thinking of it now, the way it is in, in the U.K. and the way it is in New Zealand, but not typically in the U.S., is that you'd have to prove, besides non-consent, that the defendant either did not believe that... So let me put it this way. If the defendant believed that the victim had consented even though it was a mistake, right, if they believed it and it was a reasonable belief, then that's a full defense. That's a complete excuse. So and I think that's okay. So that, that version of the law I think is okay, that a reasonable mistake would be an excuse. But it has to be a reasonable mistake. So it shouldn't be a mistake like, well, she did say no, but I could tell she wanted it. You know, that would be by my not a reasonable mistake. And I got interested in the Stubblefield case because that's a case where I think she was mistaken. I think he did not consent. And then my question was, hmm, could this count as a reasonable mistake? So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question fully enough about how I think the law should be. There's much more I could say, but I figured that's probably enough. Basically that I think that a reasonable mistake should excuse and that you should have to prove you should have to prove there was non-consensual sex and then you might say the absence of a reasonable belief that the other person did consent. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So could you go into some details and explain about the Anna Stubblefield case? So Anna Stubblefield 
was a philosophy professor at Rutgers Newark and specialization in ethics, and especially interested in issues of race and then disability. She, in her classes, talked a lot about uh, disability issues. And one, at one point in the class, she showed part of a film that showed the use of facilitated communication. So basically, there's a technique to help people who, for because of physical problems, weren't able to write and weren't able to speak, couldn't sign either. And so the idea was that you could maybe steady an arm or something to, to overcome a barrier to their being able to then type. And ideally, with facilitated communication, you would learn to type unassisted. And when that happens, of course, that's great. Then we know things are working fine. The problem is that very often facilitated communication doesn't ever become unassisted. And so you've got somebody with maybe one hand under the elbow and the other hand over your hand trying to just keep you from from having a, a motor problem that makes typing impossible. And if you've ever used a Ouija board, you can guess what happens. Unknowingly, the facilitator will be guiding the person's hand. And some people say this happens absolutely always. Some people say this happens most of the time, but Stubblefield and others in this sort of FC community think that this is just a reflection of prejudice, people who don't really want to acknowledge that a lot of people who are thought to be disabled cognitively aren't really disabled cognitively and are just resisting FC. So FC is held by some people to be something that can go wrong but it's basically a reliable method. And they dismiss the critics saying that it's due to prejudice. And that's basically what's going on, I think. Uh, and and this one of the students in the class was the brother of a young man who who's named DJ, at least that's what Kelly's referred to in the in the press. And he came up and asked her if maybe this facilitated communication technique would work for his brother DJ. And she said she'd be, she was trained in it, she'd be happy to give it a try. And, or she didn't say that. She said she'd be happy to, happy, happy to help out. I shouldn't put words in her mouth. I don't think she said give it a try. Anyway, the family was very, very pleased at her helping DJ. And she worked with DJ very extensively and thought that he was, you know, very able, very bright, and just was basically, had been unable to communicate before for physical reasons, but that, Mentally, you know, he was he was a, a very thinking being. And so she felt she was kind of releasing him from this prison, you might say, prison of not being able to communicate and being thought to be extremely mentally challenged and sort of level of toddler. And she worked with him for a period of many months. The family was on board with it. She was her own mother, Stubblefield's own mother, is very much involved in facilitated communication. She's been doing it for many years and organized a conference where she invited DJ to submit a paper. So uh, this was something then that she was facilitating uh, that is out of Stubblefield. DJ's family was on board with us. Her own family thought it was great. But then, at a certain point, she announced to DJ's mother and brother, we're in love, and then was totally open and told them that they had a sexual relationship. Now, initially, the family did not go to the police. They just said, you know, basically, we're done with you coming to the house. We're done with you helping him. And so the whole thing is a fraud. But she didn't let it go. She called up. She wanted to see him. 
and, you know, said that she was in love with him. She wanted to leave her husband and marry DJ. Well, they felt that they were just being very harassed. And so at that point, they complained to Rutgers and complained to the police. She was arrested, charged. She was then convicted. And she's now in prison, and she has a 12-year prison sentence. So they're really, you know, so if you go back to what I'm saying my starting points are, pretty much how it, you know, how it played out, I'd say, with this trial, there's a question, was there non-consensual sex? Now, she claims, still claims, that it was consensual, but that was not what the view was of the jurors. The jurors believed the prosecution who said it was non-consensual. But then the further question would be, okay, so let's suppose it was non-consensual. Did she believe it was consensual? Well, yes, she did. But that's not enough because you don't want to just have any old belief count, right? So it has to be the case that it was a reasonable belief or as it was framed in the particular statute she was tried under, it was like, did she know or should she have known he wasn't consenting? And there, too, I guess it was judged either that she did know or at least that she should have known. So that's really what I got interested in. Should we say that for purposes of the law, she should have known? I honestly felt undecided about it. So I saw some reasons in favor of saying that it should count as an unreasonable belief and some reasons to say it should count as a reasonable belief. And I'm kind of, I suppose I tilt a little bit towards saying reasonable belief, but not very decisively either. Yeah, so in a legal sense, what is the difference between non-consensual sex and unwanted sex? Oh, yes, that's a good thing to bring up. I didn't mention that when I was going over to starting points. Starting points. Well, it's not always distinguished. I think it should be distinguished, and people disagree on this, though. I think that it should be distinguished because it, it's more clear-cut, it seems to me, if you say that consent is really a matter of agreeing to something, right? So if I consent to lend somebody my car, the key thing is that I've agreed to it. It's not that I wanted to do it, but that I agreed to it. And whether I wanted it or didn't want it isn't really crucial there. So if I agree to it, but it has to be in fair conditions, right, not when I'm being pressured. So if I agree to lend somebody my car because they threaten to kill me if I don't, well, that doesn't consent. That's just, you know, I'm submitting under, under threat, under threat. But likewise with sex, if somebody agrees but only because they're being threatened or very heavily pressured, then that shouldn't count. Now, if instead you ask it in terms of wanting, well, you know, you can go that way, but it seems to me it's better not to think of it that way because that seems to me to give rise, first of all, to the initiator thinking, well, she said no, but I could tell she really wanted it, right? But that really should be neither here nor there. You don't have to, you know, try to guess if she wanted or not. She said no. And maybe she did feel like having sex with the person, but she said no. For her, whatever reason, she might have not felt this was somebody she wanted to be involved with, though, in fact, she was attracted to them, or she might have been married to somebody else, or whatever. So it seems that wanting is, is something that shouldn't be regarded as equivalent to consent. That's my view. It's not sort of defined that way in the law, though. It's a matter of some faith. Do you think there are some similarities between the Stubblefield case and the movie Talk to Her? Yes. I found it a very striking comparison. I was really, I saw a talk to her, you know, some years ago, and I was just, found it helpful to me in understanding how she might have come to fall in love with this man who presumably was 
very, very extremely mentally handicapped, and how she might have fantasized, as I think she did, that she was, in a sense, kind of like the, the you know, the prince that breaks the spell or something, right? It's like a fairy tale. But she's freeing him from this terrible life in which he has thoughts but can't communicate them. Well, the, the talk to her movie, of course, is different. That's a case where a woman is in a coma, and the nurse who has a crush on her and had had a crush on her before she was in the hospital, just develops a kind of sense of very close rapport with her. He talks to her all the time. He has some idea of her interests and tells her about things he thinks she'd be interested in. He takes her out on the balcony to enjoy the sunshine. And then he says to his friend that he wants to marry her, and the friend is shocked because he doesn't just mean he wants to marry her if she ever comes out of a coma. He wants to marry her now. He sees them as fully a couple. So, so he has this, this fantasy of the two of them as a couple. And I see Stubblefield as, as likewise having a fantasy. The difference, though, is that Stubblefield's fantasy is based on, I think, a fairly common ideology among some disability advocates. The, the ideology that she endorses is that you should sort of always give the benefit of the doubt and assume the person to be fully able cognitively unless you really have to think otherwise. So it's kind of a view that generally people may look much more disabled than they really are. It's just a prejudice that, uh, and of course it can easily happen that people read off a cognitive disability from a physical disability. So I think she just basically really went overboard on that, and then combined with that, she violated the obvious constraint that when you're in that kind of role, you would not have a sexual relationship with a person, even no matter how clear you are, that they're capable of consenting. So basically we have two problems. One problem is the problem of predation, where cognitively disabled people have been often easy prey for sexual predators, but then there's also another problem, and that's the problem of people thinking of cognitively disabled people as so clearly incapable of sex that it's just out of the question that anybody should ever have sex with them. And it's actually kind of tricky to navigate this because you do want protection, right, against predation, but you also don't want them to be deprived of the possibility of a sexual relationship if that's something that they're interested in and there's no particular reason to think they wouldn't be capable of enjoying and benefiting from it. Right, uh, I read that the jurors on the case were, they were quite baffled how Stubblefield could be in love with, with him. But, but also there was actually, few people have brought up uh, uh, different sort of perspectives in saying that he wasn't actually allowed to go into court to give evidence Right. It was apparently quite an ugly thing. I gather that he was brought in as a piece of evidence himself, but he wasn't treated as agent, a person who could answer questions. And that's something that was commented on by many people who had observed the trial, read about other observations of the trial, and it was really very disturbing. I think there was somebody, I can't remember her name right now, who is a, a disability activist who was really disturbed at the way he was treated as nothing but a piece of evidence. 
Yeah, as to the jurors, right. I think that the jurors were completely baffled at several fields falling in love with him. And I think that may have hurt several fields case that they were so baffled. And I also wouldn't be surprised if part of what was involved was a kind of a, a disgust reaction. You know, people bring it, oh, he's, you know, he wears diapers and so forth and so on. And, you know, that really, the physical disabilities shouldn't have any bearing on one's thought about capacity to consent, right? There's certainly people could be capable of consenting who uh, have to wear diapers. <laughs> but uh, I think all those things had a, probably have a very strong impact on on how the jurors were thinking about the whole thing. But I, I have to add, I'm only speculating. I've never, you know, interviewed the jurors, or I don't think they even could be interviewed if one wanted to, since they'll probably be, I mean, there may be an appeal. She's appealed it. We don't yet know if it's going to be heard. But I thought that if, I, if, if a juror had seen, talked to her, they might have a better understanding of how one might sort of see the power of fantasizing and like, fall in love with somebody. I also think that Stubblefield's own views and convictions were such that she probably thought it was, in a certain way, admirable to fall in love with someone who was regarded by everybody else as, you know, completely unsuitable because they see him as disabled, you know, unsuitable partner. And I, I would guess, so again, I'm just speculating, that she saw herself as, you know, providing him with a sexual relationship. Not that she was doing it out of charity, you know, she was very drawn to him. She really loved him. I guess still does. But I think she would have seen it quite the opposite as predatory, and Judge saw it as predatory. But I think Stubblefield probably saw this as this connected to opening the whole world to him. You are listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Professor Marcia Barron about the philosophy of law and the Stubberfield case. Yeah, you write about the prejudice because even today in society, I think that I know that there was a fellow who was a, a political activist around the area of disability and he was blind. And when he was with a, a woman who was blind, everybody thought, well, that, that's good, that makes sense. But when he actually became involved with a sighted woman, people were, were quite disapproving of the situation. Now, that's interesting. I haven't heard of a prejudice of that particular sort. Certainly regarding cognitive ability, there's you know, a combination of prejudice and understandable worry. So the prejudice is like, oh, why would they be interested in her? Why would they be interested in him? And then the understandable worry is that there is that history of credit predation, right, on cognitively disabled people so that you worry that somebody who isn't cognitively disabled and is drawn to somebody who is, is, you know, somehow taking advantage of them or seeing them as malleable or something like that. It's hard to say. But that's interesting what you're talking about. I hadn't really heard of that sort of reaction regarding a blind person and a sighted person as a couple. I don't think in the U.S., I, I might be wrong, but it doesn't seem to me, you know, we have sort of famous, you know, Ray Charles, wife, of course, was blind, and it's, after all, as a pragmatic matter, you know, <laughs> kind of a little bit more helpful if one person is sighted, too, but I, I wouldn't have thought that. It's interesting that that was a reaction in Australia. Yes, now, what were the differences between Benino and Stubberfield? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, Benino and Stubblefield. Okay, so Benino was the nurse and talked to her. And I guess the similarity is that I see them both as wrongly thinking the other person's consenting and fantasizing a relationship. But it's a little bit unfair for me to treat them as two. It's very similar because Stubblefield and DJ did have some kind of relationship. I mean, they were friendly together, right? She was spending hours with him facilitating communication. It's just that, as I see it, and, you know, I feel fairly sure of this, so I don't know for certain, that the communication wasn't really his thoughts, right? She had her hand over his hand, and they, you know, pointing, pointing to keyboard, and supposedly it's coming from him. I think she's fantasizing all that. But it's much, much more understandable, a belief, to think that he was actually doing all that than for Benino to suppose that this unconscious woman was consenting to sex with him. So I guess in, in a paper of mine that you looked at, I noted that it would be preposterous to say that Benino reasonably believed that she was consenting. But with Stubblefield, it's not implausible. It's not preposterous anyway. It's a possibility that her belief that he consented was reasonable. So that's the kind of difference that I that I was seeing there. I guess uh, to to go further into it though, his Benino's fantasy was just his own private fantasy. There wasn't anybody else who was on board with it. But Stubblefield's belief that DJ was actually communicating via FC was shared by a number of people, including until the point where she divulged the relationship to them his mother and brother, who were his, his legal guardians, they apparently believed that facilitated communication was working. Now, I, I should add that the brother, at least, was having misgivings for a while before he learned about the relationship. It wasn't all of a sudden that he changed his mind. But for some time, they were on board with it. And then a lot of other people as well, including people at a conference, people, editors of a journal, they, they accepted a paper by, by DJ that they knew was done by facilitated communication. So Stubblefield had a lot of support from other people for her belief that facilitated communication works. And if facilitated communication was working for DJ, then the things that were being typed, you know, like him telling her that he loved her, then those were genuinely from him. And so once you, if you suppose that to be the case, then there wouldn't really be any reason for her to think that he was incapable of consenting or that he wasn't consenting. So what are some of the grounds for thinking Stubberfield's mistaken belief unreasonable? Right. So I guess I've kind of given some reasons why one might say there that it's reasonable, namely that it was based on a belief facilitated communication worked, and that belief itself was supported by many people she knew and respected, and people who were educated people. So it wasn't just some kind of a, I don't know, some kind of a cult or something, like the people who are believing that Martians are coming down and we're greeting them and so forth. This is something that has, you know, had some basis. As for why it's unreasonable, well, it was widely, more widely discredited than it was believed in. And quite a lot of associations had 
taken a firm stand that it did not work. So the American Psychological Association, for example, and I'm trying to remember what some of the other ones were. I think I may actually have a list of them here, but quite a lot of professional organizations having to do with these with issues of disability, uh, communications, and so forth, also took the stand that it did not work. There had been a lot of excitement about it, and I think actually came especially out of Australia, right? I believe that facilitative communication was first put forward and thought very well of um, in Australia, if I'm not mistaken. Do you know about this? Was that with Annie's coming out? Yes, and I think that it was Crossley who was the one who developed it and and worked with, with Annie. I think I got that right. And then later, there were serious doubts raised about it and a lot of testing done on it, and it looks as if it very rarely works. I don't know the full stories of the case of Annie. That's one where it's possible that it did work. I don't know. It seems to me that... It has, again, I'm, I'm not exactly trained in this particular topic, but it seems to me that it's something that if it's going to work, it's only going to work if you, if the person who is facilitating is willing to have it tested to make sure that it's really not just a matter of suggestion where they're kind of pushing the person's hand a little bit. Did not take at all seriously the, the problems that have been clearly shown to arise with facilitated communication. You wouldn't have to choose to just not use it, but you should have have it tested, and testing isn't hard at all, right? You would just have someone who would like show, maybe show the person who you're facilitating an object out in the hall, right? And then they would be asked to, say, point to the word that says what that object was, you know, or, or the other way around, uh, you know, one way or another, you would have them answer a question they should know the answer to, and the facilitator wouldn't know the answer to, and see if they can do it. You can also have the facilitator have one thing in their mind and the other person have another thing in their mind and sort of see which thing gets touched. So that's the way the testing gets done, and it should have been, she should have had it done. And I think the fact that she didn't really does provide a very strong reason for saying that she was unreasonable in maintaining her belief, in holding the belief that he consented, that belief was predicated on her belief that facilitated communication was working, but she didn't allow for the possibility that it wasn't. She didn't have a test to make sure. Yeah, and she's serving a 12-year jail sentence, but she is appealing, so it'll be very interesting to see what happens with the appeal. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. You're very welcome. I enjoyed talking with you. And I've been speaking to Professor Marcia Barron about the philosophy of law. Well, hope you've enjoyed the program today. I've certainly enjoyed your company. And tune in again next week, same place, same time. And also stay tuned for Are You Looking at Me? You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. And I'm Lucy Main, a master's student at Monash University.